This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 31. For me, the most impactful place that this role that you and I have, GP, can sit in is between the management team, the CEO, and the board. And we sit in the middle of that triangle. And to do that effectively, we have to have such high, we have to have such high trust that if I touch the board absent my CEO, the CEO knows exactly where I'm at and that he can trust me that I'm going to move those conversations forward. And the HR perspective is more of a partner and a curiosity seeker of, okay, if we play out this scenario, these are the you know secondary and tertiary things that could happen. If you play out this scenario, this is what can happen. What do you think maps up to your vision? What does it mean to be a trusted advisor to the business? How can HR support leaders to make better and smarter decisions? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Anita Grantham. Anita is the head of HR at Bamboo HR, which is a complete HR software solution designed for small to mid-sized organizations. Over 30,000 customers trust Bamboo to help support everything from payroll to measuring the employee experience. Anita is the perfect leader for Bamboo HR as she understands the challenges and needs of HR leaders at small and mid-sized companies as she spent most of her career in similar organizations undergoing high growth. Prior to Bamboo HR, Anita was the Chief People Officer at Pluralsight, where she helped the organization scale from 300 to 2,000 team members. And prior to that, she was the VP of Talent at Infusionsoft. Throughout her career, Anita has built award-winning cultures recognized as Fortune's best companies to work for and best places to work in technology. In our conversation, Anita and I discussed why she believes every HR professional should ask themselves, what kind of HR leader do you want to be? Why she believes HR leaders need to empower the leaders they support to make their own decisions and how to do it. Why she starts her stay conversations with one candid and simple question and her advice on becoming a trusted advisor to a CEO or business leader and a lot more. Anita, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm great, JP. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you on the podcast today to hear more about you, your vision of HR, and how you and Bamboo HR is also helping organizations across the world. Really appreciate that. First, I need to tell you, I love your tagline on LinkedIn. It says, creator of incredible places to work. So tell me more about your career journey and where your passion for creating incredible places to work comes from. So the short answer is that I believe that life is too short to spend time in a place that's not incredible. And incredible is however you define it to be. And I just want organizations to look at us spending more time at work than we do anywhere else. And how do we optimize for that? So that's the quick answer. The longer answer is that I was fortunate to start in an organization with a founder that was super committed. Like this was the first book built to last by Jim Collins that I ever read. And and he, as a founder, was super focused on purpose, mission, and values. And his line was, and this isn't to be 
you know, condescending to anyone that got their start this way in HR. But he said, I'm tired of having office managers and AP accountants and clerks kind of grow into HR because they're not focused on our mission and our purpose. And therefore, they're not centered on our humans. And so that's where that was like my first job. I think that's the strange part about my journey is that my first job in HR was in the top job reporting to the CEO sitting on the executive team in my 20s. Wow. And yeah, yeah. were you just like, how did I get here? Where do I go for help? How did you know what to do when they came to you and said, Anita, we've got to make these decisions on the people side? I went home and I cried for the first, you know, month. And I just thought, wow, I'm Grant, well, at the time, Anita Kalen, I've sold ahead. Like I've sold way ahead on this. And how am I going to create value? And at the time, University of Phoenix, I was living in Arizona. They had a night program in organizational management. And I was really lucky. The two instructors that really stood out were in the Intel Leading Through People program and at Medtronic. And at the time, had really strong HR programs. And so going through that program, it built an immediate network of people that were reliable and dependable that I could call on and ask for help. And I did that program and put myself through it for 18 months at night as I got my bearings and just really learned the power of strong mentorship, quick learning, and just really approaching everything with a learning mindset of help me understand, tell me more, that type of perspective. And this team was incredible. You know, this team was just super patient with me and really thoughtful as they helped me get my bearings. Well, even if they're patient, you must have been delivering results and gaining their trust, which is really an important part of the role of being a CHRO. And so that role, what company was that again? Tell us some more about that experience. That's such a great entry point to HR. Yeah, it's called Jokaki Construction. They actually just celebrated their 40th anniversary in business. I was there for the first 10 years of my career working for two fifth-generation Arizonans, two brothers. And we had a tenant improvement business. We had a manufacturing business. We had a real estate business. And we had a restaurant. And so I got to work across all four of those because they're very entrepreneurial. So we were starting things, closing things down, partnering in things. So it was just a great way I could learn a number of different businesses over a long period of time. We had one unsuccessful president transition, one successful We switched from being solely owned by the founders into an ESOP. And so I just had a lot of time to learn a lot of different things. Well, it's great you talk about that because a lot of people think, I need to go to a big company. I want to go to this big company and get the big brand, you know, brand name on my resume or my LinkedIn profile. But actually going to a smaller company, you really learn a lot because you have to do it all. What's your advice on that? Do you think people should try to start smaller companies or bigger companies earlier in their career? This is a great question. I get asked it frequently. And I go back to what kind of HR leader do you want to be? I've worked with career HR leaders that want to be an expert in recruiting or rewards or operations. And so I think it's important to say, okay, if I want to be in the top job, what do I have to know to be in the top job? And I always say to be in the top job, you have to do the dirty work. So you have to be deep in business partnership and you have to be deep in rewards. And not everybody wants to do that. And and so... I think if you want to do it all, it's good to start. At Jokaki was about 100 people and 100 million in revenue when I started. So you got a lot of variability. It was not a large team. We had a payroll person and that was it. I learned that leader-led was super effective because I couldn't do it all on my own. So that was good from the start that I had to lead through influence, which is a critical skill that I think a lot of successful HR leaders have to have. 
So decide who you want to be, decide what type of organization is going to give you that experience and look as much to the organization and the like cumulative leadership team as to how you're going to learn those things and definitely learn the core skills that you need depending wherever you want to go. So I think midsize is better and then you can decide to fine tune based on where you want to be. Yeah. And I think one thing I'd add to that too is making sure whoever you work for. Yeah. You know, whether that's a CEO, a business leader, or it's a CHRO, that you feel like you can learn from them, you can partner, that they want to invest in you, especially the smaller company, because you're not going to learn by yourself. No. You know, it sounds like you did trial by fire and you were more ambitious and more resourceful to find the resources and people to help you. But a lot of times you could join a small company, be the only HR person, and it's very lonely and it's difficult. I think next to the CEO, the HR job can be the most lonely position. Why do you think that is? Because we house everything. We know everything. We know the underbelly. We don't talk about it. The good ones don't talk about it. That's what I share with my team is that if you sacrifice confidentiality, you sacrifice everything that this team is and we will not be successful. So you have to be able to be articulate and artful without giving away the information that you maintain. And a lot of times HR leaders feel they have to tell their CEO everything. And that's not the case. I always ask my team, what's your intention of sharing this? What do you Mm -hmm. intend to create by disseminating this information beyond you? I'm training a business partner team from scratch right now. And this one team member came to me and she said, I just had this amazing experience with this leader. And he told me all these things. And I really want to. And I said, stop. I said, stop. I said, do you have permission to share this with me? And she was kind of like dumbfounded. And she's like, why, why would you ask? And I said, well, I get the feeling you're going to share something intimate and personal with me. Is that the case? And she said, yes. And I said, and did you ask permission to share that? And she said, but you're my leader. And I said, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I said, unless you're dealing with like the big, you know, um, harassment or discrimination, like at that point, like, yes, we should talk about it. But if you're sharing stories about where they are in their leadership journey, how they're feeling about their team, something personal that they're, they're dealing with, you have no business to share that with me without permission in a way that I can come back and be of assistance. And so we've been talking about that with the team in a way that she really gained and support and trust. And it's been a journey because I don't think that's something we learn natively. In my experience working with senior executives, if I share something, and it's a problem or something that could be a problem, I better have a solution for what I'm bringing up. Otherwise, they're like, what are you doing about it? Why are you telling me this? And it can be hard because I'm a CPO like you are, but there's times when I'm like, I've got a big idea in my head. It's not fully fully thought through. And I'll bite my tongue and say, okay, I need to come back when I'm ready. Because otherwise, you lose credibility and it's not the right time. And you may not make the sale or they're going to come back to you and say, well, well, go solve that. And why are you bringing me a problem? So you have to be really careful. But your point on confidentiality is even more important. Business leaders are trusting HR partners. They're getting to build relationships. And if they feel like you go out and tell somebody and it gets around just one time, you lose your credibility. It's so, it's so detrimental. I think it's why I, I, this is the first time I've ever had the HR title in my title before, but I think it's why HR is viewed as something separate, something administrative. A lot of times it is because the confidentiality and the inability to be discreet. And also to your point, know your audience. Like if you have a direct solve CEO that you're working for, that's always going to ask you what you're doing next on it. You have to know that as soon as you bring something up, you're going to be 
in that place. And a lot of times people just don't think about what they intend to create and then what they do to the human. Like I also don't like sharing my perspective on candidates because it creates what the next interviewer thinks of them. Or if I had a really challenging conversation with a leader and I share that with everyone, it creates the persona of that leader to everyone I shared it with. It can kill careers. I'm sure you've seen this. It's the power of HR leaders that we don't really talk about, but it can be abused by sharing perceptions, shaping perceptions. And I think if we do it wrong, and it's not easy. So a lot of people listening are probably thinking, hey, this is a challenge, but it can look political. Like we're purposely trying to prove an agenda. And we're not, right? The best HR leaders are really not. We're here for the business and we're trying to do the right thing for every team member. But you got to be really careful about that. And I think it's a great point in interviewing. Um, I've fallen into this trap multiple times. I probably should you know, bite my tongue more often. But you get that phone call, like, well, what'd you think of that candidate? Yeah. And it's like, of course you want to add value and share. But sometimes you're like, well, why don't you interview them first? And then I'll tell you. Is probably yeah. I should do more often. It's hard though, because like, I think, I don't know if you're like this. I, HR leader, am people pleaser, right? I like to serve others. I think that's like a natural capability of people that land in this field. And this is counter to that natural act. It is. You're right. I'm a big fan of the Hogan. So I've actually looked at the Hogan data for like HR professionals around the world. And yes, we're people pleasers and have a hard time having difficult conversations. We don't want to do that in general, but HR people more so than most, which can be difficult because it's occupational hazard is you have to actually have tough conversations and say, this is what we need to do and do that in a nice way. But we have to push back or say no a lot of times. Some of my current team, and I'm sure you've seen this too, they don't want to empower the leaders. They don't want to teach them how to fish because they feel like they lose their value in it. And I'm like, well, what is partnership doing it for them? It's a lot like parenting, right? If we do everything for our children, how will they ever be independent and self-sufficient? But it takes a lot to be disciplined to say, how would you think through that? What do you think about the answer to that? Why is it that you don't want to do your homework? And what do you think the implications are of that decision? And are you okay with that? It's the same thing in the business world. Going back to your career journey, Anita, so tell us more about after that incredible experience where early in your career, you really became the head of HR. You then moved on to Plural Site for a while. Talk about that. And then now to Bamboo HR. So give us a little more color on your career. Um, so Plural Site was an amazing opportunity, still really close with that whole crew. And at the time, I was connected to the head of people at Plural Site through a woman that was on my team, actually at a startup here called Infusionsoft. That was the that was my first journey in tech that I really enjoyed. So Infusionsoft was in Arizona. And a woman on my team moved to Boston where the head of people was for Pluralsight. And she had never been a head of people before. And so she would call and say, how do you do things? How do you think about things? So we had kind of the symbiotic relationship where we'd call and ask for help. And so one day she called me and she said, hey, I'm tired of commuting to Utah. I need to hire my successor. Who do you have? And I said, well, let me send you some candidates. Do they need to live in Utah? And she said, yes. And I said, great, let me find you some people that can. And so we kept having these conversations and she said, you know, I think you should just really meet with this founder. And I said, but I'm not moving to Utah. And she said, I know, but I think you could help help him sort out what he wants in this role. And so at the time, Aaron Sconard and I got on the phone and we talked for like two and a half hours. I remember it really vividly. I was in my driveway. It was springtime in Arizona. It was warm. And I was taking my littles to preschool. And my husband came out and he's like, you're going to Utah, aren't you? 
And I said, I am. I'm going next week. (laughs) And so I came up here and I never really went back to Arizona. I just started commuting and coming up here. And then, you know, about a month later, we decided to formalize the position. And a lot of it was just, hey, we've gotten this far. We've gotten to about a hundred million in revenue and we've stalled. And for the first time, we've been bootstrapped the entire time. And now we've taken on venture and now our go to market and product are struggling. Hmm. And what do we do? And so we kind of started from scratch and we said, let's really look at, okay, as a founder, what do you want to create? Do you want a lifestyle business? Do you want a growth business? Do you want a publicly traded business? Like, what is it that you want? That's always like the first question I ask any founder. And then based on what you want, how do we build a strategy to achieve that outcome? And then what values, our behaviors are going to guide that direction to make the strategy realistic and deliverable. And so we started building that work and we changed out the executive team for the first of three times during my almost six years there. And we started really building in a growth business and shifted from serving consumers to serving the enterprise, really upgraded our product strategy, upgraded our go-to-market strategy, hired a different head of marketing, a different head of revenue, built out our international motion. And so we started with 300 team members. And when I left six years later, we had 2,000 team members in 12 countries. And it was amazing. It was a great chapter for me. That's amazing. That's a great growth story. And what an incredible experience because you're growing, you're moving into different countries. And I think the business perspective comes through in the way you're thinking about the business the entire time, even starting with asking the founder, what do they want to achieve? And that's what we should always be thinking about. What's the end game, the business goal? Right. Without a marketplace, there is no workplace, right? We need to have customers to have that. So it's super important we do that. And then what made you decide to join Bamboo HR? So the CEO of Bamboo was on our board at Pluralsight. He was our head of comp committee. So outside my own management team, he was probably the leader that I interacted most with. We had decided over the course of of a long time that Pluralsight was going to be acquired by Vista. I had a team member. I'd been working with my whole team. I always offer my job up. I'm like, who wants this job? And there was one team member that really outperformed the rest. And he was really ready to take the top job. And so Aaron and I had long discussions. And at the time we made the Vista announcement, we started hemorrhaging talent back into the Wasatch Front. And I said to Aaron, this is a great opportunity for somebody to get their first shot at the top job. We've promised it to him. Do you want to give away any more talent? Like, how is the room for both of us? Like, we should put him in. Like, let's do this. And so we did that and put him in the top job. And um, I took a great sabbatical and spent time with the family, which I really needed. And then Brad called and he said, why don't you think about coming to Bamboo? And so it was awesome because I love I love the core job. And at Bamboo, you know, I've spent half of today, most of my days actually working with the product team. A lot, And how do we continue to craft a product for small businesses, 25 to 500, that help that HR team of one really succeed and become more strategic and kind of evolve the perception of HR through our technology and our tools? And so that was one aspect of the job I really liked. And then to do things like this and and provide mentoring and help to all the lonely HR people out there to let them know that they're not alone. And, you know, JP, you and I are here to help them out because it's (laughs) it's tough, especially in the last three years. What's cool about you being a Bamboo HR, you can almost be like the chief product officer because you're the customer of what you guys do, which is so fun. 
Going back to your incredible workplaces and places to work, one thing you recommend to people, leaders and HR are having stay conversations. And we've had people talk about stay conversations. You know, I think Adam Grant got some good publicity recently for saying, hey, you should talk to people before they go. Don't have exit interviews, have stay interviews. And I'm like, Adam, am I, hey, look, come on the podcast anytime, Adam Grant. I would love to have you. However, sure. they've been around for a long time. So it's not a new concept, but it sounds like you've got a perspective that you'd love to share and talk more about that does make it maybe a little bit unique or at least a great reminder of how to do them effectively. Like you said, they've been around for a long time. It's a practice I've often had. And when I started at Bamboo, I was about, I don't know, 60 days in. And, you know, probably like you, JP, in this seat, I can meet with people really quickly and know if they're going to be on this team or not, right? So I was having this conversation with this incredible woman and I knew I wanted her to stay on this team. And I felt in our conversation that she was a little bit tentative. She was a little restless in her career. She'd been in Bamboo for five years. She'd been in the same role and had a lot of good institutional knowledge, but didn't seem like really fired up about the future. Hmm. And so I just said, hey, if a recruiter called you today, would you take the call? And she was kind of like crapped her pants a little bit, like wasn't really sure if she, you know, should answer this question. And she's like, yeah, I would, I would take the call. I said, what would make you take the call? And she's like, well, I'm not really sure like what my path is here. I'm not really sure what my growth opportunities are. You know, I really like the work we've done, but what's next and what the team, what's the team going to look like? Like what, what is it going to turn into? And I have all these other passions and all these other side projects. She built out our DEI and B strategy. She built out a lot of work. She's a recruiter for our sales team. So she did a lot of work on leveling and talk track of recruiting sales team members. So she did a lot of really important work at Bamboo outside of the core of her job. And I just said, look, I want you to be here. And we're building that right now. And I'd love you to be an active part in building that and helping shape where we're going. Would that be interesting for you? She's like, yes, that would. And it just was kind of like a light bulb for me. Like, let's, especially if you're starting a new role in a new company and you know those players that you want to retain, ask, don't be afraid to ask the question I find leaders are so afraid to ask these questions. And when you ask, it gives you knowledge. I knew right away what I needed to do to retain her. And now she's in our our business partner program. She's never been a business partner before. And she's learning and she's growing every day. She's being challenged every day. She's excited. She has that light in her eye. And she it's hard, right? It's really hard, but she's doing great. And it's just exciting to see a year later where we've come. That is a terrific story. I do love that question. If a recruiter called, would you take the call? Yeah. And so I think that's a great entry point. Because a lot of times I think the stay conversations we come at it with, you know, how are you doing? Do you like your job? What can we do to make it a better place here to work for you? It's a beating around the bush. It's not so direct. You, it's not direct, which is, hey, if someone offered you 15% more tomorrow to do the same job down the street, would you take it? Right. And if they're only about money or whatever it is, maybe they shouldn't be there to begin with. Right. So that's a good take. Working in lockstep with your CEO or business leader is another factor that is so important in creating an incredible place to work. I know you're passionate about this, that you've got to be aligned with your CEO. You know, talk a little bit more about why is this alignment so important? What advice do you have for HR leaders to build this alignment? Because it's not easy to do. It sounds easy on paper, but it's not easy to put into practice. It's not easy to do. And in my own career, I haven't always gotten this right. And it's why I'm more committed to it than ever. 
Brad first did a podcast with me when I was still at Pluralsight. I had no intention of leaving. He was at Bamboo and he asked me the same question. And I said, it's like a spiritual, it's got to be like a spiritual connection. And I know that may sound like a little bit odd, but I think when you take two of the loneliest jobs in an organization, and for me, the most impactful place that this role that you and I have, JP, can sit in is between the management team, the CEO, and the board. And we sit in the middle of that triangle. And to do that effectively, we have to have such high, we have to have such high trust that if I talk to the board absent my CEO, the CEO knows exactly where I'm at and that he can trust me that I'm going to move those conversations forward. And same with the management team. And especially when you go through an IPO and go from public to private, board compensation, CEO compensation, all of that sits within my domain. And so if you don't have a really thoughtful relationship on what does this business look like to you? Where do you want it to end up? Those are personal conversations, especially when you take founder-run organizations and they've birthed it like another child and been with it. Bamboo's been around for 15 years. Plural sites older than 15 years. They've worked inside these businesses for a long time. Oftentimes, to back up and say, what do I want in my life as a founder? Where do I want to contribute and play? Those are deep personal conversations. And I think in order to create a culture that drives to those outcomes, you have to have a relationship that's very honest and very truthful. And the HR perspective is more of a partner and a curiosity seeker of, okay, if we play out this scenario, these are the you know secondary and tertiary things that could happen. If you play out this scenario, this is what could happen. What do you think maps up to your vision? Or sometimes they don't even have a vision and you have to say, let's create a vision of what do you want? And maybe you should talk to your partner and talk to the other founders that may not be operating, but still have a say in where the business is. And so it's just critical for the HR person to be very neutral and very strategic and not attached. My job is to do what is best for Bamboo. It's not what's best for the founders or the employees. It's like, what is, how does Bamboo continue its embodiment and setting people free to do great work as evidenced by what? And let's make decisions around that place versus one person or a small group of people. And I think when you can create that, it's magic. There's so many good points in there. I think one being neutral, but then helping them to think through, you know, neutral to the outcome. Yeah. Saying like, you know, I'm open to whatever you want to do. We think it's right for the business. I don't have an agenda I'm trying to push. I just want to help you think that through. Like there's option A, option B, option C. That is the role of what a trusted advisor and HR partner can really play. It can be hard because sometimes we have a personal opinion and you know, we need to have a point of view. So they ask, like, well, what should we do? Anita, you're probably like, hey, look, if it was me, I would do A. But I'm not you. So we still have to make the right decision, you know, but not kind of force it. I think that's where some HR people get a little over their skis and they start to push a little too hard on the business. And it's a balance, though, because every CEO is different. Some are like, no, I want you to push me. I need it. Other ones are like, hey, step back. There's so much EQ that's required to be a great HR leader that way. I work with CEOs that hired me in to partner. And then they experienced what that partnership looked like. And they're like, I don't want this anymore. I want you to do what I tell you to do. And then my answer is like, great, you're severely overpaying me. Let's go find you like a great director level person to go do that. And that's okay. 
like, again, like you and I to have no judgment around it. I want you to have what you need. And if that's not me, that's cool. Let's go get you what you need. And just because I don't want to play in that space either. So that's why going back to kind of our, our principal point of small companies or large companies, what kind of leader do you want to be and how best do you succeed to create an incredible work environment for yourself and interview for that? Yeah. And like, what kind of workplace are we trying to create? What kind of organization are we making? What kind of dent are we making? Are we just about the P&L or are we about something more? It's okay either way, to your point, but be clear about it. And a lot of organizations aren't always as clear. So I love the fact that you just said, yeah, maybe this isn't a good fit. Because I was going to ask you, what should an HR leader do? There's HR leaders listening right now that are like, I'm not aligned with my CEO or business leader. What should I do? I need to help me. Quit. <laughs> It. And I think more than ever, HR leaders should always have a bank of six months sabbatical money in the bank because, you know, things change. Investors change as head of HR for an organization that took PE money and the CEO is not in control anymore. And so who do you want to work for? And are you lined up with with the values of whoever the owner is, even though we're not advertising it and talking about it? Is that who you want to work with? And I think just going back to that directness principle that we spoke of earlier, when you know what you're committed to, you can easily go back to your CEO and say, hey, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. And I am I want to go do this kind of work. Do you see room for me to do that kind of work with you? And why don't you think about it? And why don't we talk about it and open up the conversation? And if we decide that we can't, can we treat each other really well? But keep in mind, the HR person has all the knowledge of how they've treated other direct reports. So you have to look at the pattern. Like I'm a big pattern observer. And I know that if I'm asking a CEO to change a pattern, it's a low odds bet. So I also have to be really aware that actions speak louder than words. And if I'm asking for something that's outside the pattern set, it might be easier for me just to walk away. I have seen, to your point, more senior HR leaders who have gone on sabbatical yeah. who've left roles because of what they weren't aligned with what the organization was doing. And so it's really important to have that alignment, I think, to be successful, not only to live with yourself, but also feel like you're making that impact that we wanted to make every day. Yeah, I have good friends at, you know, all the recruiting firms that call you and me on a regular basis. And we had dinner in San Francisco two weeks ago, and they just reinforced the amount of exits they've had of, of experienced HR leaders out of the space and then when I was in market, I was really surprised how few founders were willing to take bets on their incumbents. And then the person that was there before hadn't really trained their incumbent to take the seat. And now I think we're flooded with a lot of early career HR leaders. That was who was at a lot of the, at the dinners that I went to. And it's amazing, but they need guidance and mentorship. That's why I was so excited to come and be with you on this podcast. Because any way that we can help them grow and fill that seat, I think we'll be really well rewarded here in the next decade for these companies. We talked a little bit about you know, exiting an organization. And obviously right now, unemployment is still historically low, but we're seeing layoffs in tech, especially in tech and other industries. You know, What are they missing when it comes to how to handle these difficult decisions and do a reduction in force? Because it, it is a business reality. But how do you suggest people do it the right way? There's so much to this question. One, I've been in organizations where, of course, our human expense is our largest expense. But depending on your size and scale, you can have other line items that are significant. 
So one of the things that came up at this dinner that I was at is that everybody had added mental health benefits and they weren't seeing utilization. And while all the articles and while I believe that mental health is an important thing that we as humans need to focus on, does it need to be out of the workplace expense line item? I don't know. And if that means that we could save humans, we should do that. You know, I think timing is another big thing. You know, there was a number of layoffs here in the Silicon Slopes, and people were really condemning companies for their timing of making those layoffs. And if they didn't time it when they did, they would have had to lose another 100 people. You know, you never hear the backstories of all the things. And that's when I'd love, you know, one of our values at Bamboo is assume that. And when it's really hard, because like, I've lost my job before too. I've been on both sides of this thing. And you don't know everything is point one. The business is doing the best they can. And then as a deliverer of those messages many times, how do I want that person to feel? And taking care of severance and benefits especially make a big difference to that outgoing team member and thinking about, hey, what do you want them to say about this? Because everybody's back channeling. Everybody's doing different types of referencing, whether you're a customer or a team member. While I may disagree with the decision, was I treated fairly? Was I treated well? Fair is a tough word. I can't really win on fair, but can I say they treated me okay given the conditions being so crappy? I think if you can say this, that, then it's then it's more or less a win. And I really like to be thoughtful in the message. I really like to have marketing, PR if you have it, all the business leaders. Like it can take months to put together a strategy like this to make it really thoughtful and look at all the pros and cons. You know, T&E is an easy one right now. Like it's getting back, but do we need the level of T&E that we needed before? Could we save some people? Have we been really diligent on our performance conversations? Why is it when the business isn't performing, all of a sudden we haven't talked about whether the humans are performing and now we're left to layoffs? And I think a lot of companies take the easy button of saying, I don't want to have hard conversations, so I'm just going to lay you off. And so it gets complex. It is complex. The reality is, I think, there's a lot that goes into these decisions. Every HR person I know really puts a lot of thought into this. You know, we want to be empathetic. We want to do, you know, really make decisions based on data and the business so the business can survive and we can save future jobs, if that might be the case, and then execute these difficult decisions warmly. But it's never easy. But I think you're right. We've always got to look at where can we cut some costs first? And are there luxuries that we have today that we don't need? You know, how do we look at this holistically? And I think organizations are doing that. There's some organizations doing that really, really well. I think the transparency piece has been huge because now, frankly, we're in an age where people are going to post on LinkedIn about their experience. They're going to send that email to whatever news source that's going to be out there. And so we know as HR leaders, we need to do that not only for the business to protect our employment brand, but because it's the right thing to do, right? To treat people the right way. Yeah. You also talked about leaving organizations and maybe CEOs or business leaders that we don't align with or the company's values we don't align with. But you're a big believer in exiting gracefully, whether you resign or you're laid off. Why do you believe this is so important? What does it mean to be a good leaver? The world is so small. You know, look at our LinkedIn. We're one connection away from pretty much any human we want to be connected to. And I think karma is important right? And we are all humans. I don't think people wake up thinking I'm going to be a big jerk today. And so I just love to give, you know, assume the best, give the benefit of the doubt, 
and leave an organization better than when I found. And it's something Aaron and I've talked about. And he's like, I was so grateful that you left me with a qualified successor and a team. Not everything was perfect, but he knew where the gaps were. He knew where the strengths were. He knew what we had to go get done in that next chapter after I wasn't there. And that's important, you know, versus having a leader leave. And it's like Pandora's box of all these things. Well, I didn't know that that wasn't covered. And I didn't know the team didn't know this. And I didn't know that. That makes it really hard on the organization and the customer. And, you know, when that call comes, because it will, of like, would you enthusiastically rehire JP for this job? I want every time the answer to be like, yes. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect all the time. I make mistakes every day. Like on a good day, I, you know, I hit a 70% batting average probably, right? Lots of room to grow. And, and being transparent. I think one of those things that's important for us as HR leaders is being honest and transparent about where we are. And on my teams that I build, I would say we have to be a greater demonstration of our values than any other team which looks like incredible accountability to performance. And when we miss, we're the first ones to say, hey, I'm short here. This is why. And this is what you can count on going forward. And if we're not willing to do that, how can we expect any of our peers to do it? Last question for you, Anita. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? The first word that comes to me is customized. You know, in in the industrial age, it was very much one size fits all. I think we've kept a one size fits all. And as I look at multi-generations, multi-faceted backgrounds and needs of different team members, I look at the different types of jobs that we have. Like in Bamboo, we have people that make $18 an hour to very technical engineers and architects that make hundreds of thousands of dollars. What matters to them is different. And so when we can customize our processes and our benefits and our experiences while we're maintaining consistency and philosophy and principle, it's very difficult. And I think it's what will be required to keep the best talent. Anita, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR, Customize Future for All, and an incredible workplace. It has been incredibly and fun to talk with you today. I loved your insights. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Anita for her insights on becoming a trusted advisor to the business and her pragmatic advice for HR leaders. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. After you're joining Future of HR, be sure to leave a review Subscribe or help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, who are the co-authors of The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. In the research, Rob and Karen interviewed over 300 high-performing and successful professionals, and in doing so, uncovered how micro-stress is impacting all of our lives. They also discovered what each of us and HR can do to reduce micro-stress across our organizations. This is an important conversation you will not want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.